Yeah, so I think my sweetness and bitterness this week is the same the same evening. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Larry and I were had a game night with a bunch of our friends uh, where we played a bunch of Jackbox games, and it was a great time. That was fun. Yeah. That was really fun. It was awesome, but I was drinking beer throughout a lot of it, cracked open a few of my favorite beers for it, and that was the sweetness part of it where I had a great time. Uh, but the bitterness comes into play when... Basically, Larry and I, a little while back for my birthday, we went to this distillery in downtown Los Angeles that's basically like a Disneyland version of a, of a rum distillery. Uh, it's called Lost Spirits, and it's a great place. You get on a little boat, you get on a little pirate boat, and you cruise around, and, <laughs> and you get on like themed buses. There's buses that are like a submarine and a French cafe bus. It's a very it's ridiculous it's, and it's, great at the same it time. It is. It is wild. <laughs> you, there's one room where you, you get on like a little tram in a warehouse and it literally just goes in a small circle, but they turn off all the lights. So it feels like you're going somewhere kind of Willy Wonka style. But, uh, <laughs> yes, but one of their, one of their most highly touted drinks is this Navy rum, this uh, oh, yeah. Navy rum. Nice that's Navy it's, Yeah. It's a 61% rum and it is wildly strong. And I guess I like, I've been having a few social zoom calls where I've been drinking, but I've not really been drinking that much on those calls. So it's been a while since I drank, but on that game night, I had a couple glasses of that Navy rum and it hit me hard that night. And I was sick. (laughs) I was sicker than I've been since like Uh, early 20s birthday parties. I was wildly sick. I didn't, it hits you hard and it came afterwards. Like I felt fine and I was loose. What do you mean by sick? Did you barf? I threw up. I Oh, you I have, have thrown up. I have not thrown up from alcohol in so long, and I was like, "What is happening in the middle well, of I quarantine?" I love that it's also during quarantine. Yeah, in the <laughs> quarantine, I went hard on the Navy Doctor, rum. I've been vomiting all day. I it was stay in wild how hard it. I was feeling fine. I was feeling loose, and then all of a sudden, we were just sitting there on the couch, and I was like, "I gotta go. I'll be right back." And that was my evening. And then I also just woke up the next. I think I like passed out too, and I woke up the next day, and Megan had like rolled out the couch bed for me. Oh, I woke up, and I didn't. I did not remember sign. getting there. Uh, but, uh, but it was a great game night before that. So that's both my sweetness and my bitterness. <laughs> Bravo. That is hilarious. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Navy drank rum is, um, that, that stuff oh. makes some interesting decisions for you. Yeah. I'm okay. drinking it. I'm drinking it like candy. I'm drinking it like candy. <laughs> nice. Uh, it's, it's my, um, digestive drink. Nice. <laughs> it should be. My, yeah. I, I drink, um, Green chartreuse. That's just a oh, I love like green chartreuse. Achilles heel for me. I just love oh that God. stuff. It mm. Cost a million dollars, but I just I saved up for it and I just like made it happen. And it is fantastic on its own. It's fantastic in cocktails. Um, actually, was reading a uh, cookbook where there's a uh, chartreuse souffle um, that was like this sounds amazing, but why would I <laughs> why would I cook with it rent when I can oh, just yeah. drink it? <laughs> oh wow. Oh wow! Yeah. That's yeah. I gotta try this green chartreuse. Oh, so good. Oh, Megan yeah, and I so. on our honeymoon discovered it. Like we were at a very French traditional restaurant, and they recommended it as our as our after dinner. What is it? digestif? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we Ooh. just fell in love with it. We even like took a bottle back, and it, you know oh, we wait didn't. Wait a minute! Didn't we have some of this in Italy, Rich? No, we had no? other. We had amaro, or you know amari, various different uh, digestifs. Oh, but okay. Chartreuse is French, and I don't oh. think we went anywhere that would have had it. We had something that was green. Oh yeah, we had Centerbe, which is uh, it's what was Italian that? for hun- 
Chenterbe. Chenterbe. C E N T and then you word E R B E, which means 100 herbs. But yeah, Buona. it's the same idea as chartreuse. It's like strong, it's pretty sweet, but it's also uh. super herbaceous and, um, you know, a lot of different, you know, kind of crazy herb spices, roots, things like that. Wormwood, I'm sure, is in there too. Maddie, you were talking about wormwood last oh, yeah. time. Yes, so, I got yeah. to stock up on my, my digestives. It's a nice way to do bad. dessert. It, it has kind of replaced ordering dessert for me, it's just getting that after dinner mm-hmm. digestive or cocktail. And I feel very nice classy, trouble. but I still am trouble. having dessert. <laughs> yeah, limoncello is trouble too. Oh man, I was in Italy. Oh gosh, the limoncello there. All right, mine's gonna be short and sweet. All right. Uh, uh, the the bitterness was having a hard time finding some Fuller's ESB. Uh oh. And I love that beer. I love it. I've been so excited about this episode, so I can drink that and. Rich can tell me what I'm tasting, even though I don't really care because I already like the beer. <laughs> so that was the bitterness. I couldn't find it. But the sweetness, and I can't say sweetness without shouting out Walter Payton. There you um, go. The sweetness was my buddy, Maddie. I texted Maddie. I said, Maddie, I can't find this ESB. And Maddie said, hey, I'll bring you a bottle. I braved, I braved the virus he, to bring to bring. Larry he braved there. the virus. He came up my stairs. He knocked on the door. He backed down five or six stairs <laughs> well, and left the beer right by my screen door. It's the door. weirdest way to interact because, yeah, Larry opens <laughs> you, yeah, Larry opens his, his door, his front door, but there's a screen door still shut and kind of through it. He's just kind of like, six feet, Maddie. Six, six feet, buddy. Six, six feet, feet, buddy. <laughs> Step back. And we're like trying to be like, oh, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Just through yeah. the screen door, both in our kind of pajama, half pajama day outfit. I know. I think I had a, I think I tied a shirt around my face or something. But it was so funny. I was coming out of the my room because I was like, hey, Rach, uh, my wife. I was like, hey, Rach, um, Maddie's going to be coming here. And I'm on this call right now. And I hear, Larry! <laughs> Larry! I was like, Maddie? Yeah. So, yeah, come out with sweetness. That was sweet. So, there you go. Well done. You were uh, you saved the day, Manny. Oh, great. Happy to do what I can. Uh, so for me, um, yeah, in the past week or so, my my bitterness and my sweetness, um, I'd say my bitterness is probably – so I've, I'm sure you guys – have you been getting those um, like quarantine uh, recipe share chain emails from friends? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've gotten a couple of those, and I've actually been dutiful and forwarded them along with a, with a recipe. And um, – I sent one out to a bunch of my friends just to, I kind of picked the friends. I was like, you know, I don't, I don't talk to these guys that often, you know, let me reach out to these guys. This will be sort of like a way to, you know, startups, you know, a conversation or startup interaction and kind of see where this goes. And I've gotten just crickets from everyone I emailed, except for two guys who were both like, yeah, I don't really do chain emails. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> like, thanks guys. But I have taken the, the opportunity to uh, to you know razz them and uh, you know start up a, a conversation. So there's something good coming of it. Yeah. But, uh, it. It's official that all my friends are the oldest farts in the world that say uh, <laughs> get get off my lawn. So and then my uh, <laughs> my sweetness has been. Um, does that mean am I a simp? Am I like this optimist, this like silly guy who's just like, oh yeah, I'll send a lot. Walter Payton, you said sweetness. Sorry, Walter Payton. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry, we lost you, Larry. Anyway, yeah, I guess I am a, a bit of a simp. But anyway, so yeah, my sweetness, I would say. Um, so the, uh, the craft brewers conference happens uh, every spring. It's usually in like April, maybe, maybe it's May. Um, it's a big conference. It's like thirteen thousand people from across, uh, really across the world, all involved in the professional brewing industry. And um, I've been a couple times. I've been fortunate enough to be chosen as a speaker one time. I, I talked about staff training. 
I just love this thing. It's a great opportunity for learning. But of course, this year it got canceled because of coronavirus. The Brewers Association is the trade association that hosts this thing, and they've put together a virtual version of it where they have, uh, you know, tons of different speakers talking about, you know, really interesting, at least interesting to me, kind of technical beer topics, everything from, you know, how to build a draft system to um, making sure you're using the right, uh, you know, oxidative cleaning chemicals when you're cleaning stainless steel to things like, you know, hop creep, which is an issue these days in heavily dry hops, IPA. So it's a bunch of kind of technical. What? What'd you call it? What'd you say? Hop creep? <laughs> what? Creep. Hop creep. Uh, so it's the idea. It's actually terribly named. It's about as accurate as dry hopping is, which isn't dry hopping. Hop creep. I think I've been called that back in the days when I was <laughs> when I was single. There you go. Not to kick it. So hop, yeah, creep. hop yeah. creep is is the idea that when you dry hop a beer really heavily, there are enzymes that are um, naturally occurring in the hops that can break down certain mm -hmm. unfermentable sugars into fermentable sugars. And it's usually not an issue because you're not adding so many hops to most beers, so you don't really get a um, you know critical mass of these enzymes. Uh, however, when you are drinking a triple dry hopped you know hazy IPA or whatever that has 10 pounds of hops per barrel of beer, you end up getting enough of these enzymes. It breaks down. Uh, heretofore unfermentable sugars into fermentable sugars. And if there's any live yeast still in the beer, that yeast will create a secondary or potentially a tertiary fermentation in that beer, creating more alcohol, creating more carbonation, as well as creating more uh, fermentation flavors, including things like diacetyl, which is a buttery off flavor. So you don't want oh. these to occur. They're normally going to occur during primary fermentation when you expect them to, but you don't want them to occur a second or a third time if you're not careful about it. So well, Rich, is an issue. Yeah, there's got to be a way to like work that though in your favor, right? You know, to or no? I mean, could, well, I mean, can it can it work in certain styles? I mean, something about that sounds really dope. Well, the, <laughs> the issue the issue is that you know you need you know you you hop your beer um, in the context of how sweet the beer is, right? So yeah. even if the beer doesn't seem overtly sweet, there usually is some sort of residual sugar in there that balances the bitterness and the aroma of the hops. Um, and so if you lose that sweetness, then your beer tastes out of balance. Got it, got it, got it. Furthermore, got it. if it's in the can or a keg or a bottle and it undergoes this further fermentation, you might end up getting too much carbonation and the can or the bottle might explode, which mm. is obviously dangerous and bad. And uh, even if the thing doesn't explode, you might end up getting that buttery flavor in there. So, Larry, we were talking a couple episodes ago. I know yeah. you're not a fan of that buttery flavor. So it's hard to make hop creep work in your favor because, in particular, you're trying to, you know, a finished beer means that it's it's sort of static. It's stable, right? It's not going to change. And that's what you put into the package. That's what you put into the bottle of the can of the cat. So, yeah, and hop creep, it's inconsistent, too. You know, I mean, it depends on a lot of different variables that that brewing scientists and brewing chemists are trying to determine right now how to anticipate it, how to control it, how to mitigate it. Um, but it, right now, a lot of brewers that are throwing just tons and tons of hops into that, into the fermenter and into the, uh, into the secondary conditioning tank that want to get more of that hop aroma in there, they're not, they don't know how to roll the dice and figure out when they're going to get hop creep and what to do about it. You know, so it really, it changes a lot of different stuff. I mean, this is obviously a whole other episode we could dive into um, for, for IPAs and the, you know, you know, the use of hops and things that the brewers have to worry about. Um, but a fun thing for a lot of brewers, like kind of five years ago, that, that became a real trend was something called biotransformation, which is when you dry hopped your beer during fermentation because uh, the fermentation temperatures at like 70 degrees or so, coupled with the active uh, enzymatic 
enzymatic activity of the brewer's yeast would break down certain, you know, uh, flavoring components in the hops and then recombine them with certain yeast byproducts and other hop byproducts to create new flavors that weren't present before. And so that was a really exciting thing. However, those conditions are exactly what contribute to hop creep, the warm temperature, the yeast activity, uh, adding more and more hops. And so it's sort of a double-edged sword that, you know, contemporary brewers, IPA brewers need to worry about nowadays. So, um, yeah, anyway, so this is the, yeah. the dorky stuff that gets discussed during... Hey, I, like, I like the dorky this is, stuff. This is some of the more technical, casual banter to open a podcast ever <laughs> to yeah. ever exist. I like to combine technical and casual. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so the, the Brewers Association is putting on, um, you know, it's on... Uh, uh, Crowdcast is the uh, is the platform they're using, but it, it's basically it's a virtual CBC. So um, CBC was canceled, which I was bummed about, but virtual CBC is occurring in its place, and so that's the sweetness. I've listened to a couple talks already this week. Um, an extra sweetness was uh, happened today after uh, after the last talk. Um, one of the presenters uh, said, "All right, I'm going to take some questions." And you know, she's in her home office. You know, and you can see like pictures of her kids on the wall and stuff like that. She she just cracks a beer. She's like, "All right, I'm I'm ready for questions." She reaches into her fridge behind behind her and opens up a 16 ounce can and cracks it and starts just chatting away and answering questions. And that's that's the beer industry. It's like beer is just part of part of work. It's part of life. Yeah, that's and, awesome. Uh, Are people is is anybody yeah. allowed to see those talks? Are those available? They are available. Yeah, oh. the virtual CBC is free and. I don't believe you have to be a, a Brewers Association member. So, um, yeah, by the time this episode comes out, we'll be in the middle of week two. I think it's a five-week CBC. Cool. So I apologize if listeners hear this and try to log on to the CBC talks and they're not uh, – they don't have permission. I, I apologize if that's the case. But I yeah. think – Worth checking open. out, though. So, so yeah. you just yeah, Google yeah, CBC, CBC Beer Brewing, they'll probably it'll probably come up? Uh, yeah, Craft Brewers Conference. Um, Perfect. Yeah, CBC might lead to something else, I guess. But mm. uh, Craft Brewers Conference is, is, is the way to go. The Cool Boys Club website. We'll get some hits from CBC. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, cool. uh, so why don't we get started? Hey, everybody. This is Liquid Bread. There we go. We made Woo-hoo. the intro. Hey, Liquid Breaders. Hi. Hey, Liquid Breaders. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I was just copying no. you. Just well, that's a reason not to copy me, Larry, but I said, well, you're stupid. <laughs> well, it sounded better coming out of your mouth than mine. <laughs> well, good. I don't know about that. I was trying to sound cool. but well, Larry, you're work. like a hype man for it. Hype man! There you go. I guess. You're my Don King. Hey, so um, while we're while I have the floor, while I've stolen the floor, I want to mention something that came up in the last episode that I kind of uh, went down a tangent without actually telling the main thing that needed to be mentioned. So bottle-conditioned beer uh, is beer that has uh, yeast, um, you know, introduced into the package, into the bottle or the can, and um, the beer undergoes a final fermentation intentionally in the can, not like hop creep. Okay, ignore the hop creep thing we were just talking about. So bottle conditioning um, ends up with a beer that's beautiful and tastes great, uh, but it still has yeast in in the beer in the in the bottle. Okay. So Larry, you were asking about your saison Dupont, and said, should I store it upright or should I lie it on its side? Yeah, and you. In general, you always want to store beers upright. Okay, there's several reasons for this. Uh, bottle conditioned beer is especially an issue. You want that yeast to sort of compact down the bottom of that bottle so that it's as firmly, you know, stuck in place there as possible, and it allows you to pour, you know, 95% of the beer from the bottle while leaving only 5% of the beer that's the yeasty stuff in the bottom of the bottle. 
um, we were talking about Cezanne DuPont, how uh, the brewers, the brewery specifically stores that beer on its side because they have sort of a powdery yeast that they want to sort of stay, you know, stay as, as evenly in suspension in the beer as possible to avoid having big clumps or snowflakes of, of yeast end up uh, precipitating on the bottom of the bottle and then end up getting introduced into the glass, into, into your pour. So Cezanne de Pont is a is an outlier. In general, store your beer upright, especially if it's a bottle condition. Beautiful. So oh, did yeah. I did I cover my bases there? I think so. Yeah, yeah you you, right. you clean that up perfectly. Uh, right. I'm gonna. Excellent. I'll get to intros. I'm Maddie Smith. Everybody, how you doing? Uh, with me is my buddy Larry Bates. Hey, how y'all doing? Quarantine, yeah. <laughs> and also with us, Larry's brother-in-law, Master Cicerone, and the original hop creep, Rich Higgins. <laughs> <laughs> i'm the hop creep <laughs> uh, now today's episode i'm very excited for this one today we're talking about new albion a, a brewing company in northern california that had a very short short life but made a huge impact in many ways the the beginnings of the modern craft beer movement one thing to note this is going to be a two-part episode because as we were going through it, there's just so many there are so many details, there are so many people to mention, and so much to get through that we thought it'd be best to be a two-parter. And the tasting for this episode, I guess, won't technically be this episode; it'll be in part two. Uh, we're going to taste the Fuller's ESB in yeah. part two of the episode. I, I also just want to say I'm I'm excited about this episode too. Just just not as excited as Maddie. <laughs> Oh, booyah. Wow, <laughs> interesting. Sort of in your face. That feels like, that, that feels like a dig beer. at me and I don't know why. Like it's not... No, it was it wasn't a dig. You just said you were super excited. And I, I just want people to okay. know I'm excited too, but not as excited not as, as you. That's 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 all. Cool. Maddie, you have a, you have a new bitterness of the week. When, when I know, yeah, you on, the, on the podcast. He's undermined my enthusiasm. It wasn't a dig. <laughs> it was, right. Just showing you you're really excited. Well, everyone write in and let us know if that was a dig. Uh, but, <laughs> but since we're we're basically talking about the story of craft beer as we know it in America, this is a very modern, very American story. Just first of all, Rich, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about briefly basically what, quote, craft beer is, because there's sort of a textbook Brewers Association definition, but it's kind of an ambiguous term that gets tossed around a lot. Uh, so what to you is craft beer? Well, it is a super ambiguous uh, uh, kind of moving target. So um, <clears throat> it's really best uh, argued about over several beers in a pub and kind of talking about it academically and extracting it into some sort of, um, or, you know, uh, encapsulating a, it into a definition that can be um, followed or tracked via marketing insights and things like that um, and sales figures and stuff like that gets really uh, frustrating because you lose the you lose the, the soul and the root of of what this of what craft beer is. So the Brewers Association sort of definitely steps aside or steps sidesteps rather what craft beer is because they don't want to be an adjudicator of what a craft beer is. They want to uh, help their trade association members, the breweries. So they help define what a craft brewer is, not what craft beer is. Mm. So um, their definition aside, um, for me. Really what we're talking about is craft brewers and craft beer is beer that has integrity and genuineness and honesty in it. All right. What the hell is that? What what does that mean? I mean, that's so many different things. Yeah. What so the hell is me, that, though, Rich? <laughs> yeah. Just boosting. Actually, just boosting. I just said, yeah, what the hell is that, Rich? I'm just boosting <laughs> you. <laughs> I, I assume that's what you said, but I was in the middle of sighing. <laughs> I was exasperated. So, yeah. So for me, it's embracing flavor. 
a lot of the time craft beers are termed full flavored beers. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not to be confused with full bodied beers, but it's just beer that doesn't skimp on flavor Mm. um, to embrace flavor. So I was a, I was a professional brewer, craft brewer for 10 years, um, a little more than that actually at a number of different pubs in San Francisco. So I brewed a lot of different beers from a professional, from a craft standpoint. And for me, it was always about embracing flavor. And sometimes that's at the expense of drinkability and cheap prices. And those are those are complaints that a lot of people have about craft beer. It's not drinkable, it's too full bodied, it's too intense, and it's too expensive, right? So yeah, I hear you. That that can happen to some craft beers that embrace full flavor. Other times though, uh, embracing flavor means, you know, for beers that are meant to be, you know, easy drinking and refreshing, sessionable, um, and cheap. You know, there are a lot of craft brewers that are, you know, they're very sensitive to the markets. So they need to make sure that they have some less expensive offerings. Mm. Full flavor is always present, though, in those beers when they're brewed by craft brewers, um, or at least more so than the than the flavor of equivalent styles of beer from macro or you know industrial brewers. So, so an example is something like um, like a, a Mexican lager. Okay, mm. that's a style of beer that was really invented by very large brewers, and it is a beer that is intentionally extremely easy drinking and. And yeah. kind of delicate in flavor. Does, doesn't like a Mexican it. lager. I like a Mexican lager. I sure, do. there's nothing wrong with them, you know. But they don't typically have tons of flavor. Okay, and now that craft brewers are are market has evolved, or really the the movement has evolved, so that they're kind of running out of all these intense beers to brew. So they're trying to sort of set their sights on easier to drink beers. There are a lot of Mexican lagers that are now being brewed by craft brewers really all over the world, but especially in the United States. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with a simple beer like that, but it's it's part of a broader portfolio, right? So every craft brewery usually has several different beers that they brew. And there's a real range of beers. Sometimes it's, you know, Imperial Stouts, it's double IPAs, it's sour beers. And Mexican lager fits within that broader context because it's like an adjunct lager that's in a, it's like an intellectual experiment and a challenge, a tasty, delicious challenge for the brewers who drink plenty of Mexican lager, but also milk stout and double IPA and things like that. Yeah. So it's like variety is the spice of life and understanding and appreciating the full flavored beers help you appreciate the simple stuff as well. And it connects you and sort of stokes your curiosity about, about the whole range of beer, you know, the whole diversity of beer, everything in between. I feel like I've always looked at it as, as just craft beer is, you know, it when you see it, but describing it is just never going to fully satisfy what mm-hmm. the picture in my mind. So, so Maddie, you're saying, you know, you know, a craft beer when you see one, if yeah. you see a Mexican lager brewed by a small craft brewer and you taste it, do you think automatically, yeah, this is a craft beer or is there some, some gray area in there? Oh, I feel like the, in terms of, cause what you're saying about like the full flavored aspects of it, I don't think of that in, in my personal like craft beer definition. I, I never really mm-hmm. looked at it in that way. It's kind yeah. of it, I I inherently include like the context and the brewery itself where it's coming from yeah yeah into it so I I wouldn't yeah but that's a good question though it's yeah it's tricky you know again I don't think that one really fits as a craft beer but if it's coming from a craft brewer again it's part of yeah you know I mean do you find do you define craft by flavor and impact of beer or do you define it by uh, commitment to you know sourcing quality ingredients and brewing you know with time honored traditions and things like that. You know, something like Pliny the Elder is a really famous IPA, double IPA, actually, from Russian River Brewery. People are floored. You know, I see Jaws 
drop when I say truthfully that that beer has dextrose in it and it has hop extracts. What? It has it has whole hops as well or hop pellets at least no. and hop oils, but it has hop extract and it has dextrose, which is a corn sugar, oh, which boy. is sort of the root of the whole you know Miller so corn syrup uh, uh, no. debacle. No. So, and Cezanne Dupont ever ever had that beer, Maddie? Uh, I've heard I of hear, it. I hear you like that beer. Cezanne Dupont. Cezanne Dupont. It sounds just, familiar. Did, didn't we yeah. just drink that? Didn't we just drink that last week? Oh hey. Oh yeah, yeah. That's why it seems so. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So that has that has corn in it. That has flaked maize. Nice. Or it used to. At least. I don't know what the current recipe is, but and then Belgians typically will they chapitalize their beer. So that's an old kind of a wine term for for fortifying the strength of uh of grape juice to get enough sugar in it so that it makes a fully alcoholic wine but you can do the same thing with with wort to make a, a stronger beer and so in belgium they will frequently for their stronger beers they'll chapitalize with sugar usually it's beet sugar and sometimes corn sugar and it adds drinkability to the beer overall because it lightens the body but those beers the soul of those beers is the flavors that they get from the fermentation so they use really expressive yeasts, and the more food you give those yeasts, whether it's malt sugars or corn sugars or beet sugars or whatever, that yeast doesn't care. The yeast is still going to create really interesting flavors uh, from the fermentation. Right. So the Belgians use use sugar to keep the beer sort of light and drinkable. They call it digestible, while increasing the overall flavor of the beer because because of that yeast. There's a there's a so, term you just use. Chap is, I think it's capitalization or chap what? Yep. capitalized chap. Chapitalization, yeah. yeah. Chapitalization. I think I think the discussion of craft beer is great because essentially this story is the story of craft beer, but I want to get into it now because we got a long story ahead. Again, we'll taste the Fuller's ESB in the second part of the episode. If you have another beer, crack it open and listen along to the story. I'm drinking a German-style Pilsner from a local brewery called Eagle Rock Brewery. Uh, you guys nice. drinking? I'm, I'm drinking an arrogant bastard. Nice. <laughs> um, I'm drinking a Bayern Pilsner. Great. Personally, again, I love the story. I think part of it's because I, I lived up in the Bay Area. Rich, you did too, so I'm sure you have an affinity for that area. And the characters I love, Jack McAuliffe I love, and just kind of what he did and what he put together at a time when it was just such an outlier thing to do. Larry, I'm going to have you kick it off. Something is brewing amid the golden fields and aromatic vineyards of California's lush wine country. But it sure ain't vino. It's ale. Brewed by a man and two women in what may be the nation's smallest commercial brewery, located outside this small rustic town, 20 miles north of San Francisco. That was how an Associated Press reporter described the new Albion Brewing Company in Sonoma, California, shortly after its opening in 1977. New Albion's founder had essentially assembled the brewery from scraps, utilizing a background in welding, while living in an apartment he'd built up a ladder in the brew house itself. He and, at first, the only other two employees brewed every day, 12 hours, just to produce a barrel and a half of beer, or 496 12-ounce bottles at a time, to be distributed locally by one of those employees' vans. For comparison, a nearby Anheuser-Busch brewery brewed 4 million barrels of beer a year versus New Albion's 400. So even in those limited details, I think it's easy to see the origins of the spirit and culture of modern American craft brewing, Although it only survived six years, didn't make a profit, and the beer never even made it out of Northern California, craft beer owes so much to the inspiration of New Albion. And that's before we get to the sorry state of the American beer industry at the time. Rich, when I, when I say New Albion, what, is that, what comes to mind for you? 
Uh, immediately that brewery. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think of the uh, I think of the um, the signage because the sign, the new Albion sign, the actual original wooden sign is hanging on the wall of the Russian River Brewing Pub in downtown Santa Rosa, California. But it has so, that. It yeah. does have that reverence for it. Most of those who know if their beer want, and beer history. If you wanted me to say reverence, I would. It, yeah, I mean that that place. You know, I never had the beer, unfortunately. I wasn't mm-hmm. drinking beer in 1982 when it closed. But, you know, that place helped to pave a way for me as a, as a brewer. You know, like as, as a beer dork, I, obviously I share something in common with Jack McAuliffe, who was clearly a, a, a beer dork and a, a gambler who decided to open up a brewery. But thank God he did because it's helped pave the way. Cool. Well said. We tend to think of the abundance of breweries in the U.S. as a very modern thing, and in many ways, that's true. After all, there are over 8,100 breweries in the U.S. today, according to the Brewers Association. But what wow, ma- that's a lot of breweries. That is a, a lot, lot of beer. breweries. But a lot what, of beer. A lot of beer. But what many don't expect is that when the number of breweries increased to over 4,200 in 2015, it was surpassing the previous high of 4,131, set all the way back in 1873. Before the industry came to be completely dominated by familiar major brewing companies such as Anheuser-Busch, Miller, and Coors, beer was extremely local, often regionally distributed or less, and much of the industry was made up of what could be interpreted as an early version of microbreweries. The thriving brewery industry of the late 1800s and early 1900s is its own story. Rich, you say this all the time. You, you, I've heard you say that plenty of time. Well, about, yeah. yeah, I mean... It's- Back back in the day, you know, I mean, there were there were breweries in like every small town right, to, to help slake the thirst of the town. So you know, a lot of microbreweries nowadays or craft breweries nowadays, you know, they're really harkening back to the the traditional ingredients and traditional uh, methods of production, as well as the flavors that were around, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago. As these breweries grew back then, you know, they started to get into bottling and supplying their beer, you know, throughout the region. So they grew in size, but uh, mm. there were certainly, you know, tons and tons of breweries way back when still making incredibly delicious, flavorful beer. And, um, you know, that's kind of, that's the model we've gone back to with the, with the craft brewing revolution. Wow. So what happened to that thriving industry? First, obviously, prohibition. Although the illegal alcohol business did pretty well at the time, beer could be sold for much less per weight than most liquors and just wasn't a profitable avenue for bootleggers. Coupled with the impact of the Great Depression of 1929, the U.S. would come out of Prohibition with only 31 breweries in operation and only around 800 by the next year when more were able to get up and running again. All this despite President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's famous words spoken as he signed the act that made low-alcohol beverage sales legal again. I I, I think this would be a good time for beer. (laughs) That's a great Roosevelt. Fantastic. (laughs) Took me, took me back to 1920. I don't know what the hell he sounded Five. like. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> now, Roosevelt was right in a way. Beer consumption, especially after World War II, increased. But brewing also suffered the same development most American industries did during that time toward mass production and consolidation. Expensive advertising campaigns, advances in packaging and refrigeration, and changes in shopping habits turned beer into something bought at a grocery store and consumed at home instead of at the brewery or pub. Maddie, can I put you on pause for a sec here please do um, part of me totally agrees with the idea that you know you said that brewing also suffered uh you know the same development as uh you know most american industries did during that time so yeah you know like the the diversity of beer flavors definitely suffered you know they definitely uh, shrank down and there weren't as many uh, different offerings available 
particularly through consolidation. Basically, as you know, large breweries bought up other competition, you know, they ended up doing that in order to have less competition. And then in the process, uh, they didn't have to brew all these old beers that were, you know, brewed by the other breweries that got purchased. And so there was less uh, competition, fewer different beers being brewed. And so therefore there was just consolidation, not only of the businesses, but of beer styles and beer character. So I see that as a loss. However, brewing really did progress at the same time, you know, through all this consolidation, um, there was, you know, incredible, as you mentioned, advances in technology and, and consistency and brewing science that made for um, really not only better and more stable product, but also the ability for these breweries to really dominate a market and understand that, you know, or, or prove in a post-prohibition time that there was this market and, and it became a viable business or it didn't become a viable, you know, it proved that beer was still a viable business. Gotcha. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, suffering and progress are sort of two sides of the hand same coin that's yeah. that's very philosophical in ways that i don't really mean oh, to yeah, be, that's but... great. so by 1970 the u.s's five biggest breweries produced nearly half of the country's commercially available beer a percentage that would increase to above 85 percent in the 90s long after the mm. new albion story takes place so that's just to give you the context of all this happening in brewing's nadir in 1978 there were only 42 brewing companies in operation Say what you will about the quality of these mass-produced beers, but if anything, they lost much of the local flavor and social component of beer, and always had to be made with preservation and mass appeal in mind, rather than a brewer's personal approach to and experimentation with taste, and, you know, mouthfeel, all those other aspects that we love to talk about with Rich. So, you know, there's no bourbon barrel-aged Fruit Loop and cotton candy Dr. Fauci-themed beers in sight. I want that beer. Please tell me <laughs> There's a Dr. Fauci themed beer out there. There is a Dr. Oh, Fauci themed beer out there. I wish I'd written down what the was. I did. Yeah, I saw that written. Someone's doing it. Is there it. really? Yes, there is. Yeah. And it's, just, it's an homage to his addiction to Fruit Loops and cotton candy. Oh, I, th- I made up the Fruit Loop and cotton candy flavor. No, you did. No, my... no. He, he called me the other day asking oh. for Fruit Loops and cotton candy. Oh, Dr. Fauci did? Fauci. Totes. Get the fuck out of Dodge City. A lot of dimensions <laughs> to Dr. Fauci. So that sets up the whole context of, of everything going on and what a different uh, beer world it was back then. Let's leave America for a moment for the foggy greens of Scotland in the mid-1960s, where 18-year-old Jack McAuliffe served in the U.S. Navy at a base at Holy Lock. Trained as a welder, McAuliffe's worked on a maintenance crew for the Navy's nuclear Polaris submarines. More importantly, while living in the Scottish town of Danoon, McAuliffe had his first taste of Scotland's beer— he quickly fell in love with the ales, porters, and stouts that were nothing like the typical American lagers he was familiar with, and he began home brewing. Oh, that's good beer. <laughs> and I think, Rich, <laughs> Rich, I think you can speak to the, just the drastic difference between the beers that you would find you know, locally in Scotland versus what people were drinking regularly in the U.S. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll stop that right now. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, Britain is not immune to all of the same sort of market pressures and, and consolidation forces that were occurring in the American beer scene at the time, too. But they still had more of an extant brewing culture and, you know, uh, intact styles, uh, you know, for longer than the United States did. So, yeah, there were definitely, you know, pale ales, porters, stouts, um, you know, even probably an, an odd IPA or two available in Scotland in, you know, the 1970s. Great. Now, it helped uh, It helped that not only did McAuliffe have a technical background, but the right blend of enthusiasm and genius to begin the process of replicating those English styles in his home. Aided by Dave Lyne's The Big Book of Brewing, McAuliffe set to work, and it wasn't long before both his fellow American servicemen and Scottish neighbors were singing the praises of his home brews. 
Over the following years, McAuliffe brewed and studied brewing extensively, settling down in Northern California's Bay Area. Along the way, he met up with Michael Lewis at the University of California, Davis. Lewis is Michael. One... I know Michael. I know that dude. I know that cat. You know him? Awesome. Personally? I didn't yeah, know. yeah. We, we, we used to... Um... Your buds? No, that's a different Michael. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking of a different Michael. My bad. Go ahead. Uh, he's an amazing guy. They, the one we're actually talking about. He's Yeah, have you met incredibly... him, Rich? Oh, you know him? You really do know him? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't that's know great. him. I mean... I, I've been to talks of his. I've been to talks of, you know, I've, I've seen Jack McAuliffe talk. I've seen Michael Davis talk. I've seen Fritz Maytag talk. I've, I've you know. Great. Yeah, they're, they're amazing luminaries in the, in the industry. I'm just, yeah. you know, flattered that I had anything to, or any experience with them at all. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, because wow. Lewis is one of the most prominent figures in brewing research, having started the brewing program at UC Davis in 1964 and leading it until stepping down in August of 2018. So that's a long time, a lot of decades. And Rich, is UC Davis, is that the biggest beer like a brewing research yeah, program at a university uh yeah, it's, it's the most most renowned and, and largest um yeah brewing di- diploma program in the united states and uh what? It's, it's amazing yeah wait a minute, yeah, wait a minute. so you could get you could get a diploma yeah know. yeah it's a you know it's a degree for you know larry you can get a diploma for anything get get out of here <laughs> california <laughs> Yeah. All right. And uh, students under Lewis went on to found <laughs> and or work at breweries large and small all across the country. I didn't want to put together a list because putting together any sort of list felt like it was leaving a bunch of places out. Now, Lewis saw a lot of promise in McAuliffe and opened up the university's extensive resources to him. But while McAuliffe had been an enthusiastic and talented home brewer to that point, it was a visit to the Anchor Brewing Company that provided that last bit of inspiration that pushed McAuliffe to finally try to open up a brewery of his own. So, uh, Anchor. We Anchor. love Anchor. We yeah, love Anchor. Remember it from our first episode, we tasted that Anchor steam. So we now we're going to pivot. Now we're going to pivot again to Fritz Maytag. Fritz Maytag was an heir to, yes, that Maytag. His great-grandfather had founded the Maytag Washing Machine Company. His father had also founded a successful blue cheese company in their home state of Iowa. Now, it was while attending Stanford University, go Stanford, and visiting the local dive, the Oasis, in Menlo Park, that he first encountered his favorite beer, a local brew called Anchor Steam, from the nearby Anchor Brewing Company that had been founded in 1896 and somehow survived to that point. Wow. In 1965, having dropped out of grad school and unsure of what to do with his life, Maytag walked into the old spaghetti factory in San Francisco. No, it's not the chain old spaghetti factory that Maddie worked at in high school as a host. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, now, the eccentric owner, Fred Kuh, is it Kuh? Rich, do you know? Uh, probably Ku to me. Yeah, yeah I was going to say Ku. K-U-H. K-U-H. I'm just making it up. I'm just making it up. Fred Koo not only had created what the San Francisco Chronicle called the city's, quote, first camp decor cabaret restaurant, complete with wacky chairs on the ceiling and beaded lampshades, but he also proudly served one local beer, Anchor Steam. Despite it, apparently, according to Maureen Ogle, having become an inconsistent, often terrible tasting beer thanks to years of mismanagement at the brewery. Now, Rich, I kind of wanted to ask you about this, because Maureen Ogle says it was like inconsistent and bad and sour, Mm -hmm. and that Maytag knew that. But I also see accounts where Maytag... Supposedly, it was his favorite beer. There feels like there's a contradiction there of him loving this beer that was supposed to not be very good. Yeah, well, I don't, I mean, look, there's a lot of legend involved in this. Whether (laughs) this was Fritz's favorite beer or not, I don't know. Uh, I do know that Fritz uh, was an iconoclast, and I shouldn't say was, I think he's still still alive. 
but he uh, is always one for, you know, just what's the word? He's, he's just, he's a character, you know? And yeah. so maybe he liked it and it had a lot of personality and, and the beer wasn't always very good, but he was okay with that. Or maybe he just liked it when it was good. Yeah. Well, you I know, guess I, also, I, I don't know. yeah, I guess, I guess also the official line from anchor after the fact can't be that it was bad and that right. tech took it right. over. Yeah. Um, but anyway, either way, coup, coup, ka, what are we saying? Ka. It's got to be coup. So it, coup is German for cow. Mm. So I'm going to guess. Coup, coup, coup. Cow? So Koo huh. loved the idea of a local brewery, and he knew Maytag had a fair amount of money to his name. So he told Maytag about how Anchor was in the next few days set to close. The next day, Maytag walked to the brewery and shortly after bought it for what he said was less than the price of a used car. Cool. So yeah, at that point, cool. So yeah, so at that point, Anchor was really in trouble. It had kind of passed between multiple owners. Um, I think it'd been for six years by that current group, and it was just a failing business at that point. Maytag then went to work saving the beer that he loved. He traveled around town himself, hoping to convince local restaurants and bars to carry the beer. Often met with surprise that Anchor was even still open. One German restaurant owner, well acquainted with the beer's current state, told him. Listen, I gotta tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna destroy this Let's German. Let's hear your accent. German think, man, Larry. Let's think, hear what the German Rich, restaurant owners are. I think Rich is better equipped to do this. Than me. Larry, just pound a beer and then. Larry, you're, not, you're an actor. You can do this. Yeah, I know your beer. It's horrible. <laughs> it's sour. It is terrible beer. I will never serve that beer here. Beautiful. See, that was perfect. It was terrible. I feel like I'm in Munich. It was incredible. It was perfect. Now, (laughs) so yeah, so they didn't like the beer. (laughs) Now, the harder task, of course, was turning the beer itself into a respectable product again. The equipment at the brewery was in severe disrepair. Dismissed by some in the brewing industry as, as Maureen Ogle describes, a rich kid with a new plaything, Maytag was determined and serious about the task, spending long nights reading and studying the art and science of brewing. Uh, it's an obvious point of every one of these, you know, brewing figures that they really had to put in a whole lot of extra time. This is not something that ever comes easy to anyone. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I like mean, it's just, it's you just, gotta know a lot. You can't, so much... you can't be a natural in this, yeah. in this field. Well, Maytag's also, I mean, Fritz is, he's an incredibly like curious, passionate, smart guy too. Like he went to Stanford for, for instance, but yeah, smart guys go to Stanford. Time, I was walking down, um, <laughs> walking down the street in my neighborhood uh, one one time in San Francisco, and and uh, out of the corner of my eye, in front of this coffee shop, I see this bench uh, on it are uh, two two guys chatting, and turns out one of them is Fritz Maytag, and I recognize him. I'm like, oh my god, that's oh. Fritz! So I keep walking down the down the block, halfway down the block, I turn around, it's like I cannot pass up this opportunity to to say hi to Fritz, introduce myself, and thank him. For, uh, building a craft beer industry and, and uh, paving the way for, for, for me to have my dream job. So I turned around, I went back up the, up the street and um, kind of hovered nervously for a minute and sort of waiting for an opportunity to, to interrupt the two uh, of those guys and, and say hi to Fritz. Turned out the other guy he was talking to is uh, Bill Yenny, uh, Y-E-N-N-E is his uh, last name, how it's spelled. And he's a, he's a beer author, he lives in San Francisco, he's a great guy. And uh, they were chit-chatting about, um, about lichens. Fritz had retired from uh, owning and running Anchor Brewing Company, and he had uh, switched his passion over to uh, to lichens. And lichens. he educated me. Lichens, yeah. like he got, werewolves? He got into lichens? <laughs> no, it's a uh, it's symbiotic. A weird organism, right? Yeah. It's a symbiotic. It's two organisms in one. It's almost like it's fungus. A and... Relationship is a, of a fungus and a, uh, and a bacteria. No, a, an algae. A fungus and an algae. And um, one uh, dissolves the rock that it lives on, the other 
consumes the byproduct of dissolving the rock minerals. Kind of amazing. And Fritz had taken a passion to this. He was showing me pictures of various lichen formations. Wait, he just got and, into um, lichen? He was just like oh yeah. enjoying lichen? Was he was he, he working t- with it or was he just like he taken a liking to lichen? Like, no, he wasn't <laughs> he was retired. He was like, you know, seventy five or wow. I don't know. Dude. That's a very specific so, kind of mind. Yeah, eccentric and uh, brilliant. So I did thank him, by the way. <laughs> so <Okay>. don't mention it. <laughs> Let's talk about lichen. <laughs> what do you know about lichen? <laughs> what saved Maytag was when he finally figured out Anchor's brand. Realizing he wouldn't be able to compete with the giants dominating the industry, he decided to embrace a more old-school approach that emphasized high-quality ingredients such as two-row barley imported from Europe and by using whole hops instead of hop extracts. It would be real, authentic, high-quality, maybe a little higher-priced beer, the kind that would appeal to the not-yet-existent foodie types who wanted a little something more than the five hard-to-differentiate lagers in the refrigerated section. Maddie, you mentioned hop extract again. I, I was talking about that earlier with Planet the, Planet the Elder and Planet the Young, too. Yeah. Um, so that's – at the time, hop extracts were being brewed with, and basically all the hops that were being brewed with by the large breweries in, you know, in the 1960s, uh, 1970s, we're trying to blend hops from different areas and, and reduce the regionality of them. And so when you use those hops, it wouldn't impart a pr- particular amount of, you know, regional influence or, or specifically, uh, you know, hop variety, uh, identifiable flavors into the beer. So hop extracts got a bad name from that practice. But nowadays, you know, there are a lot of single variety hop extracts that are beautiful okay. and gorgeous to use. And they allow you to, to gain a lot more efficiency out of the beer. Basically, when you use a lot of hops in a beer, a highly hopped beer, you end up losing a lot of your yield. A lot of the wort or the beer sticks to the hop matter. Um, so you don't get to actually end up drink end up drinking that. So hop extracts are a little bit more efficient. Um, they're more expensive, but they're also more efficient. So yeah, hop extracts are okay to use nowadays, but uh, way back when they uh, they weren't, you know, formulated for any uh, real good flavorful purpose. Obviously, aided by the safety net of a family fortune, Maytag was able to focus on quality without worrying so much about expansion or any other aspects of business. It remained a local beer with a rich history reaching back into the last century. The philosophy Maytag laid out was this. Do my best Fritz here. I want to make all our beer in this building, hands-on. I mean this. We do not, emphatically do not, want to get too big. <laughs> that was a good Fritz. That's basically what he sounds That's like. That's a good Fritz. No, I, I, I recognize it. Yeah, you can see there's plenty of videos that you can see him. Uh, again, he's a, he's a very visible figure in beer. Yeah. I think that's a great Fritz. Now, much of Maytag's thinking seems obvious now. But when it came to beer at the time, he was a total outlier. After years of not turning a profit, Anchor finally was able to build up steam, pun intended, and in addition to turning into a profitable, highly acclaimed line of beers that most can find at a local grocery store today, Anchor's commitment to the quality of the beer, to retaining its local identity, and to a product steeped in history and culture had a lasting impact on hundreds if not thousands of breweries to follow. One of those breweries being New Albion. And with that, we're going to take a break. That's going to be the end of part one. And in our next episode, we're going to get into exactly what New Albion was, what it did, Fritz's influence, and everything else that really kickstarted the craft beer movement. Um, and Rich, awesome. do you want to do you want to speak for a second about Anchor, ending with us drinking yeah. it in our first episode? Yeah, definitely. You know, this was back in 1965 when Fritz took it over, and it was a it was a slog for him to turn this thing around. Um, he didn't really have a lot of you know, he was, a, he was a young guy, basically. You know, he was in his 20s, and so he didn't have a ton of business experience. Um, 
you know, and you really worked hard to develop not only the product, but also how to run a business, particularly when his product wasn't really popular. A lot of bars weren't buying it. And so it was a, it was a difficult time for him. But over the years, he obviously turned this thing around and started to develop new beers or really, you know, reincarnate old styles of beer, like a porter, like a barley wine, like a small beer. And, you know, throughout it all, it was incredibly high quality. I just stuff um it's they're not really flashy beers they've never been super uh, hip or sexy within like the new form of the craft beer movement but they uh have always had just tons of quality and tons of history behind them so i, I can't respect them enough that said though uh the story takes a bit of a turn a bit of a wrinkle in 2010 uh fritz decides to retire um and so he you know he'd run the brewery for uh, what is that 40 45 years i guess so you know good for him it's time to retire so he ended up um, his exit strategy was to sell the brewery to um, a couple uh, local guys in San Francisco. Well, the pull, the um, pull of Lichens was just too strong at that point. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he, had to, he had to get more grounded, focus. more anchored. But anyway, yeah, so he was looking to retire, and he sold uh, the brewery to a couple um, executives from the Sky Vodka Company. And so they ended up taking it over, and there was a lot of concern among traditionalists in San Francisco and in the beer scene, uh, like, what's going to happen to the brewery? They ended up doing really nice things with the, with the brewery. The beer didn't change. The beer quality didn't change. They brought out a couple more kind of hipper styles of beer, some sours, you know, kettle sours. Um, they changed up the branding a little bit. They finally brewed an IPA. There's a big argument, again, something you can discuss in a pub, argue in a pub, uh, whether uh, Anchor's Liberty Ale, which first came out in 1975, was, in fact, the first IPA or was it a proto-IPA or whatever. They ended up producing an actually legitimate, like, contemporary IPA. Anyway, they also uh, started doing distilling. So they, um, there's an anchor uh, gin. Um, there's a couple different whiskeys, a rye, mm. some interesting stuff. And so I think they brought their Sky Vodka um, kind of liquor and spirits background to, to that opportunity. They ended up selling it in uh, 2017 to Sapporo. So um, a lot of Americans, we call it Sapporo beer, but it's the Japanese, um, Japanese kind of macro lager from Japan. And there are a lot of concerns with that. It's like this is even farther from the original Fritz vision mm -hmm. of Anchor and craft beer. Um, Sapporo as a product is obviously very different from craft beer. Anchor's beer still tastes good to me. I was going to say, yeah, still... as far as you know, have they changed the recipe at all? Yeah, no, they haven't changed it as far as I know. You know, I haven't lived in San Francisco for a year and a half or so for now. So I'm not, I'm not drinking it on the regular anymore. But I think it's still pretty much the same product. Right. Though they are starting to, to brew, or maybe the rumors at least, that they're going to start brewing Sapporo. Um, for the United States market in San Francisco in the Anchor. Oh, that'd be kind of cool. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just it's no. tough to see this. Well, I, I'm all right with it. You know, that that sort of beer is a beer that is going to benefit from freshness. So yeah. if I'm in the mood for that beer, if I'm, you know, you see it all the time in Japanese restaurants and sushi spots, you know, I'd rather have it brewed in San Francisco if I'm going to drink it in America than have it, you know, imported from from Japan because that beer doesn't travel that well. I see. But uh, anyway, yeah, so this is, this is a real touch, you know, hot, hot button subject for a lot of people in the craft beer scene is it okay for breweries to sell to merge to be acquired do they lose their soul you know i, I that's a whole other episode that's a whole other argument that we can have in a pub but for now uh let's just say that um yeah anchor is still alive and brewing good beer um but it doesn't have the same ownership um that it once had and so fritz let's i'll, I'll raise a glass to fritz thank you fritz thanks fritz Thanks, Cheers. Fritz. Thanks, thanks, Mr. Maytag. Thank you. All right, so next episode, we'll taste Fuller's ESB. We'll finish off the new Albion story. Uh, but until then, thanks for listening, and happy beering. Happy beering. Happy beering. Can we get a cliffhanger?
Okay. What's going to make him want to listen to that next episode? We need a real nail biter. Did somebody die? <laughs> Tune in. Oh, oh, I have a really great story to tell, but we're out of time. So I, I will, I will say it. I don't know. Listen, listen, I, 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 listen, I can't wait to tell you, but um, I'll do it at the start of the next episode. 